If the law is good, then why are there so many questions about it, not to mention controversies? The 2024 Pactum Conference will offer clear biblical answers and wise guidance to believers seeking to understand the divine law and how it applies to life in the 21st century. Welcome to the Pactum. I'm Pat Abendroth, and I'm asking you to register for the conference. You can go to thepactum.org, register for our 2024 conference. It's called God's Good Law, and it will be in Omaha, Nebraska, October 11th and 12th, 2024. Topics include the law gospel paradigm, natural law, the law's three uses, covenant theology and the law, legalism and antinomianism, theonomy and the law, Who's speaking? It's David Van Drunen, J.V. Fesco, Mike Abendroth, and myself. And we have a special thing on Friday during the lunch hour for pastors. Uh, it's not a pastor's conference, the God's Good Law Conference, but we have many pastors who attend. And so we'll do something special for you over the lunch hour on Friday the 11th. And Mike Abendroth will do a refresher course on preaching. So really looking forward to it. The 2023 conference uh, was overwhelming as far as your great response. We had people from all over the country, some people even from out of the country. And so we're getting ready for an awesome time together in Omaha. It'll be nice in the fall time, uh, wonderful weather. Really looking forward to having so many people there for the conference dealing with this great topic. Well, today is episode 160, and it is a Pactum Responsum, which means it is a time when we answer some of your questions. And typical for the Pactum, we've got great questions because the Pactum verse is filled with great people. So theological minds wanting to know things, wanting to think through the issues. And uh, I love doing Pactum responsums. This is our second one in a row. And so today we're going to talk about everything from law and gospel, things that are even in social media news regarding law and gospel. We'll also talk about where Jesus was, where did he go when he died uh, and was in the grave for three days? What was he doing? What was happening? And we'll have all kinds of other questions. Also, this is because I'm not with Mike Grimes, unfortunately, uh, this is a Lone Ranger edition. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver, the Lone Ranger. Not only am I not with Mike Grimes today, I'm not in the posh Pactum studio. I'm in my home office recording and uh, just came home from a, a district basketball playoff game. And so I've been cheering for one of my sons. So my voice is a little stretched and uh, not asking for too much sympathy, but I had a first time, you know, it's winter time. I haven't been out on the bicycle outside for a while. So I got about a 50 mile ride in yesterday and, uh, I have a lot of bad habits, but smoking is not one of them. But today, <clears throat> I feel like a chain smoker. So it is what it is. You're going to hopefully be able to, to make it through my, my crazy voice. So before we get into the questions, there is a review that one of uh, our listeners has submitted. Five stars, of course. Good form. Well played. Thank you for that. It's entitled A Breath of Fresh Air. Been listening for a, been listening for going on a year, and the show has opened my eyes to a historical and confessional perspective, and grown my love of Christ. Thank you for that review. How encouraging! So, if you haven't reviewed or you haven't for a while, do it or do it on another platform because we're the Pactum, and you know we're nice, and it's nice to be nice, and uh, it is nice to be found by others. So, there's that. If you are new or a newer listener, and you think what is a what is a responsum? It was hard enough for me to figure out what the Pactum is, um, but what's a Pactum responsum? Well, the Pactum is true Latin for covenant, shorthand for the covenant of redemption. But responsum, well, you know what? We just made that up because it's a it's a response show, and it just sounds cooler to say responsum. So a little creativity on our part. Hope you don't mind. Let's do question number one, and it reads thus: What is problem? What is prophetic idiom, and why? 
it's, why is it important? So what is prophetic idiom and why is it important? Well, an idiom, uh, when, you, when something is idiomatic, it's um, specific to a certain group of people, a certain location, a certain place. So when I looked it up in Merriam-Webster, idiom means the language peculiar to a people or a district, community, or class. So today, Mike Grimes is not with me because he's under the weather. See, that is idiom because idiom is often figurative. And so under the weather, Mike Grimes is not literally under the weather, but he's not feeling well. And so we say things like he's under the weather. But if someone were listening, perhaps some of you might even, some of you do listen from other countries. And so you might think, I don't really know what under the weather means. It just means you're not feeling well. So another one would be the ball is in your court. We say that in the 21st century America. Well, we're not talking about playing basketball. We're just saying it's, you know, it's up to you to decide. Now, now you, you have to act. Now you're responsible. Uh, spill the beans. If you say don't spill the beans, we're not talking about something that would happen in the kitchen or at the kitchen table. We're saying don't spill the beans as in don't, don't tell the secret. Uh, don't let the word get out or don't let the cat out of the bag. So there is explaining an idiom with another idiom. We're not really talking about feline creatures and bags, although it might be a good place for, oh, never mind. I won't say it. Uh, I love all creatures, great and small. How about that? Uh, so, but when we talk about idiom, that's a prophetic idiom, we're talking about matters that are prophetic in the Bible. So this is very common in the Old Testament. I think actually Jesus utilizes it also. But when the Old Testament prophets are talking about the future, they're using their own um, language. They're using, they're explaining things in ways they, that they understand, but they're, they're waiting for, for progressive revelation um, to happen. And so they're going to say things in ways that may not be uh, meant to be taken literally when you move into, for example, the new covenant. So Herman Ritterboss has written about this a fair amount. He's known for this. And he says this, the prophet paints the future in color, in the colors and with the lines that he borrows from the world known to him, from his own environment, in other words. So that makes sense. He's explaining things in his own words. Ritterboss also says, we see the prophet's paint the future with a palette of their own experience and project the picture within their own geographical horizon. This appears in the Old Testament prophets in all kinds of ways. So off the top of my head, I went to Isaiah and Isaiah chapter two, verse four says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, is that literally what they're going to do? Well, maybe, but I don't think so. But what is going to happen, what for sure is going to happen, for example, when Messiah comes, uh, there's no longer going to be any conflict or hostility. The people of God will be safe. They don't ever have to be in fear. Uh, that text goes on to say in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So it even it even interprets it for its it it interprets itself in a sense. What do we mean by the you know the plow, swords into plowshares? You don't need swords anymore. What about spears into pruning hooks? You don't need spears anymore. There's no longer going to be any war because the Prince of Peace is coming. And so we we could be in a totally different era. Um, and where, when we live today, for example, I'm not saying the Lord is going to come back today, um, but if he were to come back today and we would always want to be ready, but if he were, well, not very many people use spears when it comes to battles. Um, there's all kinds of conflicts that go on and there are more sophisticated weapons, but the prophets speak in their own language. It's prophetic idiom. And so what they're getting at is is real it is literally true there is going to be perfect peace from the prince of peace but it's not literal in the sense that you have to carry all of the details over because they're putting things in their own language they would not have understood things that will come about in the future so that becomes significant when you read Ezekiel, for example, and you're reading about the future and you're reading about new covenant realities. Well, he's borrowing from old covenant realities, realities, explaining things in the language that he understands, that his people understand, but things look far different in the new covenant world given the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate temple. 
And so I think Ezekiel's describing the ultimate temple, but he's not putting it in terms of Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, because there are a lot of those kinds of things that he himself did not understand. So prophetic idiom, you might not use that language, but I would imagine most of you, most of us, when we read the Bible, uh, see a lot of these things for what they actually are, and we understand the author uh, in terms he meant to be understood in, except when we really push things. And we do things like we don't pay attention to the New Testament when we're interpreting the Old Testament and vice versa. So it's actually an important thing. Even if you don't remember what prophetic idiom is, as far as the title, I think you'll remember how it functions. Next question. Number two today, I think I we have about seven or so of these. There might be a bonus question. Who knows? Stay tuned and find out here on the Pactum episode 160. What should I do if my pastor is not rightly distinguishing between the law and the gospel? I think we have several of the, or at least a couple of these kinds of questions. And this is something that we take seriously on the Pactum because the law gospel distinction is so important, but we also take it seriously because pastors are important. We love pastors on the Pactum. Many pastors listen to the Pactum and share it with their church members and friends. And so, and and we're pro-pastor. So here you go. Pray for him. Uh, you, you need to pray for him. I, I have not always understood the distinction between law and gospel to my own shame. I'm thankful that men and women and boys and girls have prayed for Pat Abendroth to grow spiritually and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a better Bible interpreter, to be a better preacher. So pray for your pastor in all earnestness, and you should talk to your pastor, talk with your pastor, Um, show your care and concern. How about also offer him resources? More about this in just a little while, so stay tuned about resources. But you can, there are really excellent resources available to help him to learn more about law and gospel. And so show humility, show patience, uh, and show love and kindness. Now, what do we mean by law and gospel? We, what we mean is the law is shorthand for what God requires, and gospel is shorthand for what God graciously provides. And so both are important, both are vital, both are crucial. Uh, If we're going to be faithful, we are going to proclaim both law and gospel when we read our Bibles. And if we're going to be good Bible interpreters, we're going to pay attention to what is law. We're going to pay attention to what is gospel. And then uh, we're not going to mix the two because when you mix the two, you wreck both of them and you have what we have put on a t-shirt called gospel, which is, which is not good, not helpful. So Beza says this in a pretty classic quote by now here on the Pactum. Beza has this to say, Beza came after Calvin. And so as a reformer, he says, for with good reason, we can say that ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. You're going to end up perverting the gospel Uh, And even perverting the law, if you don't see the difference between these two super important realities. And we're going to come back to this and talk about this with some other questions. But before we do, let's let's consider maybe a a challenging text for pastors who, who don't have a law gospel paradigm and haven't thought through some of the issues. So, for example... We could think of other law gospel texts, but I'm going to choose a a bit of a difficult one, and I think that's not difficult once you see it, but I'm choosing it because I just heard a pastor do this, and the pastor's been trained in Greek, and he's been trained in Hebrew, and he knows a lot of things, expository preaching, uh, and yet when he came to this passage, because he wasn't clear about law and gospel, this is what he had to say. So the pastor was dealing with John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, which reads, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is saying there's a time coming judgment, right? And people who do good, the one who does good, they will be resurrected to life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in other words, what's he saying? He's saying good people have resurrection to life. Bad people have resurrection to judgment. 
And so what do we do? Well, what that, what the pastor did is basically say, you know, better, you better do enough. Otherwise you're not going to be resurrected for life. Otherwise, if you don't do enough, you're going to be resurrected for judgment. And I say that's total foul. Um, that's uh, Jesus is, is saying what's true, but he knows people are going to be saved. So how in the world could this be true? Well, if you have a law gospel distinction, law gospel paradigm, classic to Protestantism, you're going to say, well, the ones who do good to resurrect to the resurrection of life, there are no such people who are sons and daughters of Adam. No one will be in that line because that's just strict law. It's do this and live to borrow from Jesus elsewhere. That's for people who've loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. Old Testament teaches it. New Testament teaches it. So good people will receive eternal life, resurrection life, and those who've done evil, which would include all the sons and daughters of Adam, uh, they are going to face judgment. He's speaking in principles. Those two things are true. But what's happening is it's in the context of people need to see their need for a substitute. They need to see Jesus for who he is. You want to be at a place where if you hear John chapter five, verses 28 and 29 on its own, you say, oh no, none righteous, no, not one. No, no one does good. No, not one. I'm smoked. I'm undone. What can I do? And the only thing you can do is look to the one and only good one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides perfect atonement and not only perfect atonement, he provides perfect righteousness. And so that is a law gospel kind of text. And if you don't see it, somehow you're going to wreck the gospel. You're going to wreck the law because somehow it's just as long as you do enough good works, you're going to get in. Last time I checked, that's not very Protestant. Last time I checked, that's not very gospel. Last time I checked, that's not very biblical. Recently, we saw on X, otherwise known as Twitter, um, and I just saw this in the last couple of days, we have a post by Owen Strand, and he says, the kingdom of Christ does not advance by law. Okay, Pactum listeners, what are you thinking? Then, full stop, uh, hard return, next line, the kingdom of Christ advances by the gospel. Well, I think it sounds kind of good, but I think to myself, discerningly so, well, actually it's both, right? You have to have the law preached so people see their need for Christ. They see their guiltiness. Apart from that, the gospel wouldn't make any sense. Uh, And then you do need the gospel. That's absolutely true. And if you don't have the gospel, the kingdom of Christ doesn't advance. So we actually need both. And let me add one more thing. And you're probably finishing my sentences if you've been listening to the Pactum very long. And that would be, in addition, we also need the law to be our good guide, uh, no longer to condemn us because we're united to Christ by faith, but it is a light unto our path. It is what guides us in the Christian life as citizens, men and women, boys and girls who believe in Christ of the kingdom and the work of the kingdom. So actually, both are crucial. So I think I see what what Owen was trying to do. So I'm, I'm not being, you know, I don't want to be overly critical, but I am going to be overcritical to responses. One particular response, this is by Joseph Boot uh, on Twitter. It's at Dr. Joe Boot, just in case we wondered if he had a doctorate or not. Joseph Boot says this, and I know I've read his, I've read books by him. So I know he's a theonomist. I know he's not a big fan of the law gospel distinction. Um, and in certain writings, he doesn't seem to be a law of classic covenant theology either. And here's predictably what Joseph Boot says. And this passes as reformed theology, quote unquote, reformed theology. No surprise to see antinomianism rife in big Eva. This statement denies the gospel contains law. Law, Yeah, it does. And yet our Lord said, according to Boot, if you love me, you will obey my commandments and commissioned us to teach the nations everything I have commanded you. There's the end of the quotation by Dr. Dr. Joe Boot. Well, hold on a second. Um, yeah. I'm glad Owen Strand did not. Well, he doesn't explicitly, but I'll give him the I'll give him uh, the benefit of the doubt. 
let's for sure deny that the gospel contains law because the gospel does not contain law. Again, don't hear me for what I'm not saying. The law is crucial and important, but it is not the gospel and they are distinct and there is no law in the gospel. That's classic traditional Reformed theology, Protestant theology, even Lutherans and the Reformed can get on board with this. Uh, And when he says as his proof text, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Well, everyone in the Pactum verse knows that that's true, but that's not actually what's in view as Boot wants to use it. It's absolutely true. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, but that's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't come by your obedience. That would be what? It would be the fruit of the gospel, evidence of salvation. Absolutely. We could say third use of the law or something like that. We we do need to obey Jesus. But if we were saved by obeying Jesus, then we wouldn't need Jesus to do all of the work and to fulfill all righteousness. And when he says, and commissioned us to teach, not Jesus, but Joe Boot, and commissioned us to teach the nations, that's a little bit of a theonomic sleight of hand because we're making disciples of the nations, but to teach the nations everything I have commanded you. Yeah, we're going to tell those who are disciples everything that Jesus commanded, no problem whatsoever, including making disciples, which is evangelism, which is preaching, let's say law and gospel, but not blurred together as this really, really bad take shows. So what should you do if your pastor doesn't understand the difference between law and gospel? It might just be sloppiness. It might just be lack of familiarity with the traditional way of saying things. I think that's the Owen Strand statement, uh, giving him the benefit of the doubt. But the Joseph Boot one is digging his heels in the ground, knowing full well what he is doing. And what you end up doing is you end up perverting the gospel and the gospel becomes something other than what the gospel actually is. And even if on paper he would affirm justification sola fide, it's actually a rejection of justification sola fide, which is through faith alone, which becomes a Galatians problem. So pray for your pastor, give your pastor resources, help your pastor in all of those kinds of ways. And now we have another question that relates to this matter of law and gospel. So before I make recommendations for resources, let's do the next one. From Brian, Brian is from Ohio because we've met before, at least on two occasions, and has a sweet family. Um, He has been attending, not a member of, but attending the pastor at John, the church where John Tucker pastors. I'm going to be there again this year, this spring. Details are not up on their website yet, but uh, in Beloit, Ohio, April 12 and 13. Uh, Looking forward to that. We're going to talk about Christ in the Old Testament. Pastor John Tucker is is also an attorney. He's been on the Pactum before discussing legal matters. You should find that episode. It's really intriguing and interesting, and many people have found it to be beneficial. So all of that aside, um, this Brian is someone I know. He's listened to the Pactum. He's a Pactum listener, so I'm thankful for that. With that said, Brian says, my church, which is not my friend John Tucker's church, it's a different church. He was just visiting the conference. My church, Brian says, has recently started Romans. And while I should be overjoyed, I find myself anxious, in my opinion. We usually hear a version of gospel. Blurring law and gospel is the idea from the pulpit. Are there any articles, books you would recommend? I'm sure there are several several episodes of the Pactum as well. That's right, Brian. You should listen to all of them at least once. I smile. I kid. Instead of uh, getting mad in the pew, though I still will, I wanted to look at this as a way to positively lead my family in some encouragement and truth. Any direction you can give will be helpful and greatly anticipated. Brian also says he wasn't able to come to the last Pactum conference, but he's eager to sign up for the next Pactum cruise. Well... What can I say, Brian? If you come to the 2024 Pactum Conference on God's good law, it will help you to sort through these issues. And I can probably arrange a riverboat cruise on the muddy Missouri River. Uh, So how about that? I'm sure someone in the church has a John boat or a Joe boat, whichever one it is, and we can get you all hooked up on the muddy Missouri River. Kidding aside, how about episode 100 
Uh, we talk about law and gospel. In all seriousness, the conference this year is going to be on law and gospel because these matters are so important. Here's another good resource you could share with your pastor, and that would be a treatise on the law and the gospel by Cahoon. And it's being offered right now for free by Reformation Heritage Books. So you can just go to their website, heritagebooks.org, and you can look up Law and Gospel and you will find a free paperback edition. Uh, it's free, also a free online edition. Uh, get that for your pastor and uh, read it yourself and prayerfully give it to him. Mike Horton has a good chapter in the book, Christless Christianity, dealing with this same topic. And... Uh, I hope that uh, steers you in the right direction. And and how about this, Brian? What you could do is uh, drive a little further, maybe, you know, move neighborhoods or whatever, and just go to the church where John Tucker's the pastor because he understands law and gospel, their importance, and he doesn't blur the two. Shout out to John Tucker. Next question. What is your understanding of the sufficiency of scripture in light of second Timothy chapter three verses 16 and 17? This is fresh in my mind because I was just preaching through this text last Sunday. So in second Timothy three sixteen and 17, it says that the Bible is sufficient, but the question is, what is it sufficient for? So in verse 16, we read these familiar words, all scriptures breathed out by God. Uh, so, and consider the context, verse 15 talks about the sacred writings, no doubt a synonym for all scripture. The sacred writings will make you wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. I don't remember which one it is off the top of my head, but you get the idea. So all scriptures breathed out by God, divine origin and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We say it's a sufficiency text because it does say every. So keep that in mind. And it's pretty fascinating to, to think about the context and what he's saying. The man of God, he's not being sexist. He's, he's talking about the preacher borrowing from the Old Testament. The prophet, a true prophet in the Old Testament is called the man of God. And a true prophet, not a false prophet, a true prophet says what? He says God's words. He doesn't say his own words. He says God's words. And so this is similar, right? The scripture. Uh, so if we don't receive new special revelation from God, which we don't, we have, we have an episode on that. What do we do, though, when we're to proclaim God's truth without, you know, personal divine special revelation immediate? We preach the scripture. We preach the scripture in a lot of ways, in so many ways, just like the prophet. The prophet sticks to God's words, uh, and the Christian preacher pastor should stick to God's words as well. So it's pretty cool. Uh, in the context, you don't need more than that. You don't need to do something different than that. What do you need to do to do gospel ministry as a pastor? What do you need to do to do Christian ministry as a church? You need the special revelation from God, which is found in Scripture, and you don't need more. And you don't need something different. You don't need to listen to the culture around you to tell you how to do gospel ministry. Uh, no, you don't need that at all. So Timothy's being tempted to listen to what people are saying around Ephesus. Um, and there's enough in the text of Second Timothy to get that flavor that that he doesn't have the stoke in his heart like he once did. And that probably probably also reflects the attitude of the church. And so here, Paul's giving him a great encouragement. You have what you need. The Bible is sufficient for you. And I'm going to read it in context and will encourage you to do the same. In verse 15, he's talking about what makes one wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. You want to know how to be saved? You want to know what salvation looks like? Well, guess what? You find it in the Bible. And he does say, profitable, and, and I'm even going to read these words in that context, profitable for teaching. Teaching algebra? No. Teaching things that have to do with make, being wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus, doing gospel ministry, which is what the church is called to do, for reproof. Again, I'm going to keep it in the same kind of context. Correction. So there's the negative uh, reproof. Correction is also on the negative. So you need to tell people to stop believing certain things. You need to correct them with what to believe uh, regarding salvation, regarding Christ Jesus. Keep it in context of verse 15. And for training in righteousness. 
Uh, and that could have to do with n- your need for righteousness that comes from Christ, but it also uh, ha- could have to do with Christian living. So how do we live in light of the gospel? How does the gospel influence the way that we live? Well, there's training in righteousness, which means obedience to law. So the law did condemn us. We see Christ for who he is, which we see our need for his obedience and his righteousness and his atonement and forgiveness. But now we want to follow Christ and do the right thing. We want to follow the law because we're united to Christ by faith. See, these things all have to do with gospel ministry. And I find it fascinating as well that he uses, and I think you will too, listeners, that he says may be complete equipped. So to be complete and equipped, he's borrowing from first century nautical terminology, boating terminology. And they had rescue boats back then, uh, probably wasn't you know, quite up to Coast Guard standards in the 21st century, but they did have um, rescue boats. And so if somebody's in trouble out on the med and they can somehow, you know, be seen and they're going to go out and rescue them, they have all of the things that they need. They have the ropes and whatever else they would have in the first century. I don't know, but you get the idea. And that boat would be outfitted. It would be equipped. It would have the kit. It would have the gear necessary to go out on a rescue mission, to go save the people who are in trouble out at sea. You see the imagery. It's great imagery because what do we do as Christians? What do we do as Christian pastors? What do we do as Christian churches? We are in the business of saving people. Well, not literally ourselves. Only the Lord does that. But we know he uses means. And so the means he gives us would be we preach law and gospel as a matter of fact but the idea is the church doesn't need some new special revelation the church doesn't need some new insight from the community or the culture you know what we're called to stick to the script it's the scripture it's the sacred writings 15 16 and 17 we don't need to look elsewhere And I get excited about this because it's refreshing to me as a Christian, because it's so tempting to think maybe we need something else. I'm also excited because uh, the question regarding the sufficiency of Scripture begs another question, which is actually important. And that question is, what is it not sufficient for? Is he claiming that it's sufficient for, you know, he uses nautical terminology wonderfully, but is he saying that the Bible is sufficient for learning how to sail? I, I don't think so. Uh, is, is it sufficient for gourmet cooking? Is it sufficient for scoring more goals or hitting home runs or more home runs? Uh, shooting three-point shots, English grammar, dog training? Uh, no, 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 no. And no, it's not claiming to be sufficient for those things because we learn about those things from God's other volume in his library, which would be considered general revelation. So we have special revelation. It's God's revelation, uh, and you must have it to understand salvation and how salvation works. Uh, But in addition, there's general revelation, and you must have that also to understand something about the way the world works. God doesn't want us to neglect either of them. They both have their place, and we know they both have their place because texts like Proverbs 6, 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. So the Bible tells us in inspired scripture to look elsewhere to learn some things about life. And when Christians forget about this, they either try to make the Bible to have the answers for everything, and it doesn't. And so they do all kinds of weird, funky you know, hermeneutical gymnastics, interpretive gymnastics, trying to make the Bible, you know, have every answer, even the ones it doesn't have. Um, The other thing that happens is when Christians somehow naively think the Bible is sufficient for absolutely everything, which it's not even claiming, uh, somehow the, the church loses its focus. The focus of the church is to proclaim first importance is the gospel. We are all about preaching law and gospel, and we are all about proclaiming those things so that men and women and boys and girls will come to believe in Jesus. The church isn't called to be everything on planet earth. If we were, then we would be theoretically the best at everything. And in reality, we're not the best at everything. We have another Brian asking a question. And so here we go. Pat and Mike, thank you both for producing this show each week. It has been very beneficial to both my wife and myself as we've moved to be more covenantal law gospel paradigm. I've listened to every episode, some more than once, and always find you deeply engaging and entertaining while still tackling serious subjects. Well, before I go on, Brian, awesome, really 
do appreciate the fact that you are offering encouragement. So thank you for listening. Uh, We know you have lots of options of what you can do with your time. So we count that an honor. You go on to say, or Brian goes on to say, and I'm asking you listeners to the Pactum, not named Brian or named Brian, but not this Brian. How do you think you're going to answer this next question? I've been learning more about the biblical covenants and see greater continuity among the covenants than I did growing up in a dispensational home. I know you do not subscribe to 1689 federalism, but I'm curious about your thoughts about having a continuous covenant of grace, but still holding to a credo Baptist position. I'm still trying to solidly land on my position regarding baptism and would benefit greatly from your perspective. Whew, this is a tall order. This is a big one. So you're just asking me, Brian, to make some of my best friends mad. <laughs> uh, so first, just first off, I'm a credo Baptist. Wait, I should probably probably back up because some of you are new listeners. When we say credo Baptist, we're talking about people who baptize believers based upon a profession of faith. Um, and when we say pedo Baptist, we're talking about those who would um, baptize or sprinkle infants uh, who have um, parents who are believers. So generally speaking, that's what we mean, credo um, uh, pedo. So that's the difference there. And I I should offer a qualification. I did, um, one time when I was in Florida, I witnessed, I witnessed R.C. Sproul, who would be a pedo Baptist, baptize a believer because there was an elderly man who had been converted. And so they did believers baptism. So let's make sure that we understand, um, that they do such things. But typically when we're talking about believers baptism, we're talking about credo baptism or credo baptism, um, versus pedo baptism, pedo would be referring to typically it's going to be uh, so many times infants and it's sprinkling. So firstly, uh, I'm, I'm a credo Baptist, uh, baptized based upon profession of faith. So you believe first, then you get baptized. And simply because I think the new Testament models it. And so for most of my Christian life, that's what I've thought. I think what I, it's the way to make the most sense of reading the New Testament, reading through and you see the pattern. What do people do? They come to believe in Jesus. And what are they supposed to do when they believe in Jesus? They're supposed to obey the command to be baptized. The church is to obey the command to baptize. And so I don't think we should lose sight of that. Um, it is pretty straightforward. Now, my Presbyterian and Reformed friends are going to say, yeah, but we also have texts that say it's for the believer as well as their household. And I would say, well, I I think when we look at the text in light of the text, we'd say, yeah, all the members of the household, all the members of the household who believe should be baptized because the pattern is to believe and to be baptized. So not really um, flinching when it comes to that kind of argument. So believe, be baptized. What prevents me from being baptized? I've come to believe. Well, Nothing prevents you. You should be baptized now. Uh, so there's that. And I'm sticking to That's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Um, in all seriousness, I, some of my closest theological mentors and comrades and friends uh, are Pado baptists So there is that. And I have very dear friends, theologically like-minded, who are also 1689 Federalists, which would be different from those who would affirm the 1689 Confession. So there are some who affirm the 1689 London Baptist Confession, the Second London Confession, who um, are not 1689 Federalists. So, all right, where were we going with all of this? Um, Here's my confession. My confession to you, Brian, is I don't mind sitting back and listening to some of the battles that are going on and observing, Uh, and I don't think I need to be involved in all of the battles. So I've read on both sides. I'll keep reading on both sides within the credo-baptist world as well as the pedo-baptist world, but I'm talking specifically about the the credo-baptist world. And I think more debate needs to be done, more pushback needs to be done. Um, I've not been pleased with things that have been published in print critiquing 1689 federalism by other 1689 affirmers because the mistake I think they're, they're making is they sound, they sound a lot like uh, John Murray uh, and his take on Leviticus 18 and, and they sound uh, 
not strictly speaking, holding to the hard and fast kind of distinction between covenant of works and covenant of grace uh, and law and gospel that, that I'm most comfortable with. And so I've read and, and not, not pleased uh, with that. Uh, and so I, in a lot of ways, my 1689 Federalist friends at least are, they seem to be really clear on that. And so maybe that's why we get along so well in certain ways, because they're really clear on law and gospel and covenant of works clarity and do this and live kind of stuff. So I'm still learning, trying to sort through the issues. I would listen to maybe some back and forth. Uh, my friend, Michael Beck, um, I have urged to maybe write some things about this because he is not a 1689 Federalist either. Good friends with lots of them, um, but he's offering a little bit of pushback as well. You might find the roundtable interesting with Sam Renahan and Guy Waters and Stephen Wellham as well as Michael Beck. Um, I think it's interesting to go watch that on YouTube. It's pretty easy to find. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, I just picked up a, a book that's new to me on baptism that I'm working my way through. I'm looking for things that are credo Baptist, not 1689 Federalist, um, and also robust, clear distinction between law and gospel and, you know, robust covenant, the classic covenant theology. So that we, we do exist. And, uh, there are, are those in history who are on our side, um, and if I'm honest, another confession would be, if I'm going back to that, I feel like I just left something new recently called dispensationalism, maybe not new novel. And so I'm just really slow to, to go after what seems to me to be not traditional. So that's kind of where I am. I found, even though it's a little dated now, well, 2019, not too long ago, I did find Jordan Stefaniak's article that he wrote to be refreshing. It's called Reforming Credo-Baptism, uh, subtitle, A Westminster Alternative for Reformed Baptist Identity. So Michael Beck, calling out Michael Beck, I think you need to write about the topic or others in your orbit that would be helpful. So don't mean to dodge the question. I'm just going to be slow to, to sign up for something and uh, keep observing to see what happens. It's kind of nice. This is an aside, but it's kind of nice sometimes to just watch and, and sometimes theological debate. I think theological debate can be healthy and to sit back and kind of watch some of the people I respect um, scrap a little bit. And I think the church can benefit as a result. And, and I don't think I need to be involved in all of these things, nor am I smart enough to be leading in, in all of these kinds of debates. So there's that. From Ryan, Ryan says, I wish I could attend the upcoming conference because I'd ask Pat and Michael Beck. Aha. There you go, Mike. Uh, we, we, we need you. As a matter of fact, Michael Beck's not speaking at the next conference, but Lord willing, he's agreed to come to the 2020, losing my dates, 2025 conference. So he'll be back for that. But I go back to the question um, because he would like to ask, Ryan would like to ask a question in person. So he talks about, this is also about baptism. Um, he's a big fan of Meredith Klein and uh, Michael Beck obviously is on the Pactum. We tend to like ourselves some, some Kleinian theology as well. And uh, he's, at, he's trying to think through baptism issues and as it would relate to Klein. And so here's my question. He says, I need Pactum and two age sojourner, which would be where Michael Beck is with his Two co-hosts, to help in finally understanding your perspective on baptism. Since you both know and appreciate Klein's theological perspective, I thought you could point me in a good direction regarding mode and timing of baptism. What is the best article, chapter, or book that a Kleinian like me can read that will make me understand why credo-baptism may be more right or possibly agree that credo-baptism is more right. Well, we all know that Dr. Klein is a Baptist now. Ha ha ha. I kid. Don't mean to offend you, Kleinian people that I respect and like a lot. But I think um, a lot of Baptists do like him, even though he, he wasn't one. So, mode of baptism. I think Klein would like immersion <laughs> because of what it pictures. Um, uh, I think even as immersion, it pictures judgment. How about that? It not only pictures cleansing, but it does picture judgment, I think, because it does represent the grave. Uh, in the grave, death is judgment. 
Um, even thinking in terms of Romans chapter six, and if you're united to Christ by faith, uh, you've died with him. And he does talk about baptism in that chapter and you're raised with him unto newness of life. And so there's that. I would also think in terms of, I, I like to say and point people to the fact that when the Egyptians chased the Israelites and drowned in the Red Sea. They were baptized. Um, they were judged. They died. It was it was a grave. It was a watery grave for them. And when we're united united to Christ by faith, and baptism pictures this, we are judged. Um, but Jesus is the one who's judged for us in our place, and He's raised victorious for us. And so it's a good picture. It's a great reminder to people. If you're trusting in Jesus, remember your baptism because your baptism should remind you that you judgment has already taken place. Uh, death has already happened and there will no longer be any judgment that you will ever have to face. So mode, that's where I'm arguing. I'm not saying Klein would, um, but I think he, it would resonate. The judgment would resonate with him. And also regarding timing of baptism, uh, just I, I just have to go with, I do think the pattern is believe and be baptized. And so going back to our earlier question, uh, it's where it's at for me. Uh, so appreciate your question. Um, more work needs to be done. You know, how about this? So many times in this debate, it's, you know, the Baptists, will you guys just say that it's all about you and I've decided to follow Jesus and I'm going to get baptized because I'm so committed to Jesus. And, and you say, I thought it was, you know, a means of grace. And I thought it was more about what God declares to us. I want to say both are true and you don't force me to make uh, a false choice. So I frequently say at baptism services uh, to those who are there observing, remember your baptism right? This is a good gift from God to remind you till your dying day that if you're trusting in Christ, you're united to Christ and you therefore receive Christ and all of his benefits, union with Christ. And even on this day, you should remember that that, that is spiritually true for you. And what a wonderful picture the Lord has given us in the sacrament of baptism. So, um, at the same time, if you're believing in Jesus and you are trusting in Christ, well, you want, you want to obey. And so you're going to do the things, the thing that Christians are supposed to do, even if it causes chastisement, even if it causes hostility, even if your family doesn't want you to do it, you're willing to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so there is that, um, that's my answer. I'm sticking to it. Now you can reach out to two age sojourner because they have talked about this matter with Klein baptism as eschatological judgment. And we will link to the, at least one of the episodes where they talk about this very matter on two age sojourner. You can find that um, on their podcast. You can also probably find it on YouTube. So moving right along. Next question. It comes from Seth. Seth, Seth says, I love the show. Thanks for all the hard work you put into it. You are welcome, Seth. Thank you for listening. We consider it an honor. Please share the show with other people because why not share the love? Uh, Seth says, there's a line in the song, Jesus, by Brand New that goes, what did you do those three days you were dead? If only Mike Grimes wasn't under the weather he probably would know this song, but I don't know this song, but I get the idea nonetheless. Um, so Seth wants to know about what, how, how do we answer that, that song? Uh, he says in the Apostles' Creed, uh, it mentions that he descended into hell. Talk to us, I'm paraphrasing, he says, talk, talk to us about the theological tradition of what he was doing the three days he was dead. Please, please shed some light on this for me. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to phone a friend here and I'm not going to phone Mike Grimes. I'm going to phone Turretin, uh, and Turretin under the section that says the descent of Christ to hell says this in classic Turretin kind of, um, form was the soul of Christ after its separation from the body translated to paradise immediately, or did it descend locally to hell? Now the answer. The former we affirm. So he's saying we affirm 
that after he was separated, the body was separated from the soul, uh, he was translated to paradise immediately. Turretin affirms that. Then he goes on to say, second part of the answer, the latter descended locally to hell. The latter we deny against the papists, the Roman Catholics, and the Lutherans. And so when in doubt, side with Turretin is probably a good way to go. I realize there are other views and uh, some of those other views may have merits. But here we have Turretin saying, here's, here's the reform view that I'm going to promote and tell you, and I'm going to do it so strongly. And so I'm going to side with Turretin. I think essentially Burkhoff says the same thing. And uh, he says things like this for his support. This is Turretin. Um, First, the soul of Christ immediately after its release from the body mounted up into paradise, according to the promise made to the thief. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And we could get into the weeds and you're going to be with me. I'm not going to be. He doesn't say I'm going to be with you, which would have different theological implications to support other things. But he doesn't say that. He says you're going to be with me. Burkhoff says Calvin interprets the phrase, the phrase as far as descending um, into hell. Uh, he says he interprets the phrase metaphorically as referring to the penal or penalty sufferings of Christ on the cross, where he really suffered the pangs of hell. Similarly, Burkhoff says Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, does the same sort of thing. And then he says, according to the usual reform position, the words refer not only to the sufferings on the cross, but also to the agonies of Gethsemane. So I'm going to go ahead and side with those stalwarts of the faith and you can send me book recommendations saying, here's another view. And guess what? I probably already know the books, um, but that's where I am. That's where we are today on the Pactum. It's been a pretty good show, pretty good episode. I've sort of struggled through it with voice challenges and all being alone and all of those kinds of things. But I want to ask you to do something now as we end the episode. I want to ask you to rate the podcast, give us a good review. And think about coming to Omaha, Nebraska, people from all over the country, people from even outside of the country. We're going to have a great, great time of it. Go register. We'd love to see you in Omaha, Nebraska. You can be, you can reach out and learn more about the Pactum at thepactum.org. We're on X at the Pactum. We're on Instagram at the Pactum Theology. You can also send us a question if you would like. Connect at thepactum.org is the email. And we will see you next time here on The Pactum. <laughs>